Take your Bibles uh, and uh, let's turn uh, back to the Gospel of Luke uh, through some different reading and meditating on the Christmas story. God brought my heart back to this uh, Luke chapter 1. And so I want to read uh, some verses. The Gospel of Luke is, is uh, being introduced to us here in these opening verses. And uh, really the Christmas story is being launched here in this passage. And so uh, the Gospel of Luke chapter 1, I'm going to begin reading in verse number 5. Verse number 5, the Bible says, There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the course of Abiah, and his wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. And they had no child, because that Elizabeth was barren. And they both were now well stricken in years. And it came to pass that while he executed the priest's office before God in the order of his course, according to the custom of the priest's office, his lot was to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. And the whole multitude of the people were praying without at the time of incense. There appeared unto him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled and fear fell upon him. But the angel said unto him, Fear not, Zacharias, for thy prayer is heard. And thy wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son. And thou shalt call his name John. And thou shalt have joy and gladness. And many shall rejoice at his birth. For he shall be great in the sight of the Lord. And shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. And he shall be filled with the Holy Ghost. Even from his mother's womb. And many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord their God. And he shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elias to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And Zacharias said unto the angel, Whereby shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife well stricken in years. And the angel answering said unto him, I am Gabriel, that stand in the presence of God, and am sent to speak unto thee, and to show you these glad tidings. And behold, thou shalt be dumb, and not able to speak, until the day that these things shall be performed... Because thou believest not my words, which shall be fulfilled in their season. And the people waited for Zacharias and marveled that he tarried so long in the temple. And when he came out, he could not speak unto them. And they perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple. For he beckoned unto them and remained speechless. And it came to pass... That as soon as the days of his ministration were accomplished, he departed into his own house. May God bless the reading of his word. 
Amen. Luke chapter 1 in your Bibles this morning. What an amazing God we serve. It's wonderful to be able to sing uh, songs that draw our hearts into his presence and uh, give us calls for meditation on his greatness, his glory, and to imagine him seated upon the throne and to envision the greatness of our God. What a blessing to be able to sing praises and glory to him. Gospel of Luke chapter number one, I want us to consider a message entitled, Christmas Begins with Incense. You know, the story of Christmas is the greatest story of our year. And, and like every good story, uh, a story needs a setting. It needs a background. And uh, when a good storyteller is going to tell a story, uh, he will often launch that story with some a strategic truth, something important that, uh, that helps paint what this story is going to be about and becomes uh, an important key to the unfolding of this story. And in Luke chapter 1, God launches the story of Christmas, this greatest story that's ever been told. And he launches the story of Christmas with a visual picture. And it's a visual picture of people who are hungry for God. Uh, people who are hungry for God to be involved in their lives. And, and then God's faithful response to that hunger as he brings hope and joy and peace into the experience of mankind. And so the Christmas story is launched with a, with a vivid visual picture that is impacting and powerful to teach us that it's our cry for help that launches a God of hope in our lives. It's mankind's cry out to God for help that launches God in his activity of bringing hope into the experience of mankind. So how does God unfold this amazing story of Christmas? How does he launch the story in the pages of Scripture? Well, I want us to examine three scenes from God launching the story of Christmas in Luke chapters 1 and 2. And the first scene comes from a simple statement in verse number 5, where the Bible says, There was in the days of Herod the king of Judea. God launches the story with a scene of darkness. It's a background of darkness. God purposefully launches the story of Christmas by reminding us that the story occurred during the days when Herod was king of Judea. And those were Days of significant darkness in Israel. They were, they were days of political darkness. Herod was a despicable individual. He called himself Herod the Great. He's known in history as Herod the First. He was the one who established the Herodian dynasty of kings in Israel. And the history books are replete with the 
horrors that were brought to Israel because of the political darkness of Herod as an individual. He was a ruthless governor over the people of Israel. Now he was, a, he was quite the politician. He would fit in well in Washington, D.C. today. Uh, he was quite the manipulator. He knew how to use situations and use people and use events to further his own purposes and to gain his own uh, priorities in, 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 uh, as the, the politician of Israel, the king of Israel. He was a very effective orator. He could sway the people and convince them to follow him. Uh, but his manipulation was, uh, was powerful in controlling the direction of things. He was quite the architect. Herod will always be known as the great builder of Israel. He was the one who built the great Caesarea Maritima that people from around the world go and visit to this day. I've been there uh, three times and walked the ruins of Caesarea Maritima. Amazing, amazing architect. He built a mighty fortress on the top of Mount Masada. I've been there three times as well. He built the Herodian, the place that ended up becoming the location of his tomb. The great fortress of the Herodian that, that uh, overshadowed uh, a, a little village called Bethlehem. Uh, Herod built the, the amazing temple in Jerusalem that is the platform of which is still visited by followers of Jesus Christ from all over the world. He was an amazing architect, but he was a ruthless demagogue of a, of a leader. Ruthless, cruel there was nothing beneath him. There was nothing he wouldn't do to further his power. Had family members ruthlessly murdered. Actually, he was so hated by the people of Israel that when he was approaching his death, he knew no one would mourn over his death. No one would weep over the death of Herod the Great. And so he rounded up some of the leading Jewish uh, individuals in the religious and uh, realm and, and had them all imprisoned with strict orders that at the moment Herod breathed his last breath, all of those Jewish heroes would be slaughtered so that Israel would weep. He didn't care that they weren't weeping for him. He just wanted to make sure Israel wept when he died. He was a ruthless man. Now, fortunately for those that were rounded up, the people didn't obey his orders, and when he died, he died alone. He was a ruthless man. These were dark, dark days politically, and God purposely noted in the launching of the Christmas story that this amazing story of Christmas was launched in dark days. They were also... Days of spiritual darkness. When Luke records the events that happened in Israel, Israel had been through a long season of spiritual darkness. Based upon the record of Scripture, it had been 500 years since a miracle had been performed. 500 years before anyone in Israel had observed a miracle of God. It had been 800 years since the last season or concentration of miracles performed by God. It had been 500 years 
since the last angel appeared to man on earth. Think of that, 500 years. When the angel appeared to Zacharias in the temple this day, it had been 500 years since an angel had appeared on earth to man. It had been 400 years since God had sent a preacher to deliver a message to the people of Israel. It had been 400 years since Malachi's voice went silent and the record of his ministry in the closing book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, was complete. It had been 400 years since God had spoken to man. It had been 400 years since God had revealed truth to anyone in Israel. These were dark spiritual days. Days of political darkness and days of spiritual and, and uh, of spiritual darkness. But in spite of the political and spiritual darkness that had pervaded the land of Israel for such a long period of time, Israel was about to experience a burst of a brilliant season of hope and light. Christmas is right around the corner. And God is beginning to launch this amazing story of Christmas. And so God's first scene in launching the amazing Christmas story was to remind anyone who reads the story that the background is a background of pain and suffering and difficulty and hardship and darkness in the land of Israel. But there's a second scene. The second scene is the story of hope. In verse number 13 of our text, the Bible says an angel appeared to Zacharias for the first time in hundreds of years. An angel appears and is going to deliver a message. We haven't heard from God in 400 years. That's almost, that's almost double the, the existence of the United States of America. I mean, an angel comes with a message from God. God is about to launch a story of hope. And so the story begins. Zacharias, don't be afraid. God heard your prayer. All those words are powerful words. After hundreds of years of silence from God, God has heard your prayer. Hope is about to dawn. Luke chapter 1 and 2 unfolds this story, the dawning of hope on earth in a period in a, against a backdrop of darkness. The story is going to involve the miraculous birth of two men. One man named John here in the story we read. We know him as John the Baptist. And then Jesus the Christ. The birth of two men are recorded in Luke chapters 1 and 2 as the story of Christmas is launched. And the story of these two men were prophesied in the last two chapters of the last book of the Old Testament. The last time God had spoken. He had told about the birth of John the Baptist and the birth of Jesus the Christ. 
the one who would be God coming to earth, who would be preceded by the forerunner who would come as a messenger to prepare Israel for God coming to earth. And so the Old Testament ended with a promise of hope followed by 400 years of of darkness. And so as God introduces and launches the Christmas story, he does so by telling the birth stories of two individuals. Both of these individuals were miraculous births. They were related through their mothers, these two men. Each of their births were miraculous because John's dad and mom were well past the physical age for childbearing. And so for them to conceive in their old age will require a direct act of God enabling them to bear the prophesied one, John the Baptist. Of course, we know that Jesus' birth was miraculous on a far different plane, a far higher plane. His mom had never known a man. And so his miraculous birth was the birth of a a virgin-born one. God becoming human through the miracle of the virgin birth. John the Baptist will be born first. He'll become the forerunner and the introducer of Jesus the Christ. Who as God was coming to save his creation. And so, the the story of Christmas begins with the birth of John the Baptist, and it reaches its climax with the birth of Jesus the Christ. This is the story of hope after generations of darkness. After hundreds of years of nothing positive, God launches a story of hope. And the master storyteller doesn't want us to miss an important part in the launching of this story that can easily be overlooked. Because this story of hope came only after generations of God's people continually crying out to God for help. Help. Help in our world of darkness. Come, bring hope. Do what you promised you were going to do when Malachi told us that a messenger was going to come who would introduce God wrapped in human flesh. Generations of God's people had prayed. Generation of God's people had cried out to God for help. And the story of hope was launched on the back of a story, a a cry for help. The story of Christmas reminds us that God is a God of hope, He's a God of peace, He's a God of victory. But he's only that for those who cry out for help. Because the story of hope is a story that was launched 
in the experience of a people who were crying out to God for help. And the master storyteller made sure that he crafted the launching of the Christmas of story in such a way that we would not miss this important element, this cry for help that was prominent and powerful in the experience of God's people. So in the story that we read, we learn of a certain priest. Verse number 5 tells us that this certain priest named Zacharias of the course of Abiah and his wife was of the daughters of Aaron and her name was Elizabeth and they were both righteous before God walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the, of the Lord blameless. They had no child because Elizabeth was barren and they were both now well stricken in years. And it came to pass that while he executed the priest's office before God in the order of his course, according to the custom of the priest's office, his lot was to burn incense. His lot was to burn incense. There's a lot about this story that is kind of behind the scenes that you would only know if you are a student of the Old Testament. That you would only grasp if you knew the history of Israel and their religious devotion and worship of Jehovah God. If you, if you don't know about the tabernacle and the temple and, and the priesthood that God put in place in the Old Testament, then then you would read over quickly and, and almost without a, even being aware of a strategic truth that the master storyteller is drawing attention to. You see, in Israel, there were about 18,000 priests at the time of Zechariah's service as priest. Zechariah was merely one of 18,000 priests who lived in Israel. They lived all over Israel. The priests were descendants of Moses' brother Aaron. And they were honored to serve the people as priests. They lived all over Israel and they served the people all over Israel. They're the ones that handled the system of the worship of God. They're the ones who taught in the synagogues, who read the scriptures to the people and explained the word of God to the people. In Jerusalem, they handled the system of the sacrifices. We could call them the temple butchers. They were the ones who butchered thousands upon thousands upon thousands of animals on the temple platform in Israel. Continually, day after day after day, they were the temple butchers. And when they weren't butchering the sacrifices who would be offered up as a burnt offering to God, they would be teaching the people the law, reading and explaining and teaching the people what the Word of God had to say. These 18,000 priests were divided up into 24 groups of priests called courses. The Bible here tells us that Zacharias was of the course of Abiah. And so there were these, there were these 24 groups that... That, that, was, that division dated back to 1 Chronicles 24 to the 24 grandsons of Aaron. The priests were the descendants of Aaron. 
Aaron's 24 grandchildren became the, the, uh, the heads of these 24 groups of priests that served God in Israel continually. Zacharias was of the course of Abiah. His wife was also of a priestly family, verse 5 tells us. So we could say these were kind of like the children of full-time workers in the ministry of God. They grew up in the homes of priests who were continually teaching the word of God uh, to the people and, and going to Jerusalem to take part in the sacrificial system that occurred there. Now every priest, every Every uh, division, every, every course of priests would go to Jerusalem for a week every year, and they would do that twice. So two different times of the year, a course or a group of priests would leave wherever they lived all over Israel. They would go to Jerusalem, and they had a week-long duty that they would have twice a year. That was when they were present in Jerusalem doing all the butchering, making all the sacrifices, and when they weren't involved in the sacrificing of the animals, they were teaching the law there on the temple platform. Zacharias is in Jerusalem for one of his two weeks this year that he will be in Jerusalem. Now, the pinnacle of one's lifetime of service to God was if their name was chosen by lot to not just do the work of the priesthood on the temple platform, but to actually be one of the priests of that lot of priests, that course of priests, who was chosen by Lot to go into the holy place. And during that week in Jerusalem, those very few priests whose names were drawn out of a hat were privileged to go into the holy place to take care of the table of showbread to trim the candelabra and fill it with oil every day as often as needed to keep the flames burning and to tend to the altar of incense every morning and every night. Now if you were a priest who was in Jerusalem for your week of, of privileged service in Jerusalem and if by chance your name was selected and you were honored to be the priest who would go into the holy place, that was a once-in-a-lifetime honored experience because once you were chosen by lot to do that, your name was never again put in the box. Which means you will never do this more than one week in your entire lifetime if you even get that opportunity. Because there were far more priests than opportunities to minister inside the holy place. And so most priests never had this privileged opportunity. But Zacharias was privileged with this opportunity. And, and the Bible makes clear to us 
in verse number 8, that while he executed the priest's office before God in the order of his course, according to the custom of the priest's office, his lot was to burn incense. His responsibility during that one week, every morning to go into the holy place, and every evening to go into the holy place. Now, imagine if you would, he has never been inside the holy place in his life. Most priests never saw inside the holy place. The only thing he knew about what was inside the holy place is what he read in his Bible in the Old Testament and what priests who had been so privileged to go into that place had told other priests what it was like, what they would see if they ever were privileged to go in there. So Zacharias' name has been chosen. He's been given the responsibility of the golden altar of incense. He will go in every morning. He will go in every evening for one week to tend to this this altar of incense. Now, if you know your Bible, if you know the history and story of the tabernacle that was then replaced by the temple, you know that in the holy place there were three pieces of furniture. There was a table of showbread, there was a candelabra, and there was an altar of incense. The altar of incense was about three feet tall, two cubits, it was about 18 inches wide, a, a cubit wide, and a, it was a square 18 inches by 18 inches and about 36 inches tall, covered in gold, with a flat top, with a piece of molding around it to hold the coals. The purpose of that altar of incense was a place where the priest that was so honored to tend to that today what would go out to the temple platform where the animals were being sacrificed and he would take a little shovel and he would scoop up some of the coals from the fire that was consuming the sacrifice. He would put that scoop of coals in a, in a vessel and he would carry those coals into the holy place and he would go over to the altar of incense and he would pour the coals onto that small 18 inch by 18 inch flat surface with a ledge around it to contain the coals. He would then sprinkle incense on the top of those hot coals and immediately there would be a, a, a burst of flame, a, a, a puff of, of smoke and, and the aroma of the incense would fill the room. This was done every morning and every evening. Every day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, without, without interruption, without being stopped, this was a continual offering up of the aroma of incense, incense all from the altar, the altar of incense there. Zechariah goes in. He's never been in this room before. This room doesn't have any, any windows to the outside. It, 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 it 
only has the light of the candelabra, those seven natural wick flames that were flickering in this significant room. The, the, the shadows would be dancing off the walls. The flickering light would, would reflect off from the table of showbread and, and off the, old, the golden altar of incense and, and perhaps the gold threads in some of the tapestries. And, and the altar of incense was right, a, right up near, almost against that large... 60 foot tall, 30 foot wide, 10 inch thick curtain that separated the holy place from the Shekinah glory of God. You talk about being close to the presence of God within inches of the brilliant Shekinah glory of God hovering over the mercy seat between the cherubim. And Zechariah, who has never been in this room before, comes into this room and his eyes begin to adjust to the dim light. He sees the altar of incense, the, the flickering flames are, are, are casting shadows, dancing off the walls. He knows he's approaching the very presence of his God. And he is scared to death. And as history tells us, the priest did not wander in like a, like a 10-year-old boy and say, wow, look at this, and wander around the room and investigate. The priest knew the seriousness of where they were and the seriousness of what they were doing. And they would take those coals and that incense. They would go straight to the altar, pour out the coals, drop on the incense, and quickly exit the room. So much so that when Zacharias did not immediately come out of the room, everyone out on the temple platform waiting for him were shocked. Why is he tarrying? What's he doing? What's happening in this room? Well, what had happened in that room is as he dropped the incense on that, those coals and as the puff of Flame and, and smoke, aromatic smoke lifted up off the altar of incense. All of a sudden, for the first time in hundreds of years, an angel appeared. And Zacharias sees this angel. And, and like anybody else, he, he was struck with fear. And the angel said, don't be afraid, Zacharias. God has heard your prayers. Your wife's going to have a baby. God has answered all of your prayers all these years of growing older and watching your wife barren, not able to have a baby. And Zacharias says, well, ha. Huh. You know, I'm, maybe Zacharias thought, I'm going to go out and tell my wife this, and she's going to say, yeah, right. So he looks at the angel and says, how do I know this is really going to happen? And Gabriel, I can see him strutting a little bit. He said, I am Gabriel. I just came from Jehovah. 
to deliver to you God's message and you don't believe it? Well, since you don't believe it, you can just keep your mouth shut for nine months. And he was struck dumb and couldn't speak until after the baby was born. Zacharias quickly exited the holy of holies and or the holy place rather, and he went outside and the people are where where have you been? What's going on? What's been happening? Why were you so long in the in, in the in the holy place? And, and he couldn't explain it. He couldn't say anything. All he could do was pantomime and try to make hand gestures and 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 and, and the people realized that he had seen a vision. And the Bible says Zacharias completed his service and then quickly went home. Amazing story. But what is it that God is trying to convey to us in this amazing part of launching the Christmas story? I want you to, I want you to consider something about Zacharias. Number one, God uses ordinary people. I like that. The Bible tells us in verse 5, he was just a certain priest. There was nothing special about Zacharias. He was just a certain priest. One of 18,000 priests. Do you realize God uses ordinary things? Ordinary people. He's not looking for experts. He's not looking people, looking for people that have profound abilities. Although he uses a lot of people who are experts and have profound abilities. But God doesn't require that. He just looks for ordinary people. Something else I learned from Zacharias is that he walked with God. If God's going to use an ordinary person, that ordinary person needs to walk with God. Verse 6 tells us, both he and his wife were righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. They, they were ordinary people who walked with God. They were serious about God. Well, what does it mean that it says that they were righteous and that they walked in the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blameless? Well, righteousness is defined by the law. God defines what righteous and unrighteous is. God's the one who determines what's right and what's wrong. To be righteous means that I've accepted God's standard of what right is and what wrong is. And I walked according to God's standard of what is right. And so therefore I have gone to his word, his commandments and his ordinances. And I've, I've obeyed his commands. And I've obeyed his ordinances. And I have tried to do so in an exemplary way. He earned the trait, the, the title of being blameless. You won't find examples in his life where he didn't keep God's ordinances and commandments. And so here we have an ordinary man, but he was an ordinary man who was, who was walking with God every day. He and his wife, something else I learned from Zacharias is sometimes even ordinary people who are walking with God have struggles because our story tells us in verse 7 and 25 that they didn't have a baby. And that was a big, big thing in their lives. Elizabeth 
was childless. This had been a burden in their family. You know, walking with God does not exempt you from struggles in life. Walking with God does not mean you won't have any problems in life. Here are two ordinary people in a backdrop of great darkness in their country, politically and spiritually. And yet they're not being influenced by the darkness that pervades their country. They are walking with God in dark days. And they're doing so in an exemplary fashion. And even though they have struggles, they keep on serving God. Verse 7 and 8 tells us Zacharias is at his post serving God in spite of the struggles of his personal life. You know, problems in life do not give us a pass for serving God. They kept on serving God in spite of the struggles that were very real in their personal lives. But here's the one. Here's the one. Number five. Your spiritual life must be seen in prayer. That's what this altar of incense is all about. God launches the Christmas story standing around a 18 inch by 18 inch by 36 inch golden box with some coals of fire and a puff of aromatic smoke arising from it. This, you know, God is a visual God. That's something we we notice over and over and over again as we read our Bibles. God attaches significant meaning to something that you can see or something that is tangible. And when God created this, this altar of incense, this golden altar of incense back on Mount Sinai, He was establishing a visual for his people that they would never be able to get away from. It's a visual that that will, will remain in their minds and impact their lives forever. You see, this altar of incense was forever etched in the minds of the Jewish people as a picture of prayer. That's what the altar of incense was all about. You see, the incense was a visual portrayal of the prayer of God's people. And it was that sweet aroma that ascends from the altar of incense that filled the room, that pictured the sweet aroma that lifts off our hearts and across our lips as we open our mouths and audibly communicate With the God of all gods, our creator, our father. And just like the Jewish people, when incense was burned, would inhale the sweet aroma of the incense. God in heaven, when the prayers of God's people ascend up to God from our hearts and all from our lips, God inhales the aroma of our conversation. He inhales the aroma of our communication. And he goes, 
aroma of the communication with my kids that I've just enjoyed. That's what the altar of incense was all about. David, in Psalm 141, David was recording a prayer and he said, Lord, I cry unto thee, make haste unto me, give ear unto my voice when I cry unto thee. Let my prayer be set forth before thee as incense. David knew. David knew well of the altar of incense in the holy place just outside the veil that led to the very Shekinah glory of the presence of God. And David knew that every morning and every night, every day, without ever ending, there were, there were aromas that lifted off from that altar as a visual picture taught to the Jewish people by the priesthood. That entering into the presence of God requires prayer. Entering into the presence of God requires God's people to communicate with their God and for there to be lifting off from their hearts and across their lips an aroma of communication that God will inhale and God will say, how sweet is the aroma of the communication of my children. The Bible tells us in Revelation chapter 8, another angel came and stood at the altar having a golden censer and there was given unto him much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense which came with the prayers of the saints, ascended up before God out of the angel's hand. Oh, never forget, God, a God of pictures. God, a God of visual teaching. God created on Mount Sinai an altar where there would be coals that would release the aroma that would become a daily memorable picture of prayer and if we want to draw near the presence of the Shekinah glory of God if we want to have a meaningful relationship with God if we want our lives to be impacted if we cry out to God for help our cries for help lift up in our communication to our God that is a morning and evening ritual to Israel throughout all of those generations of crying out to God. It was God's visual reminder that it is the never-ending prayers of his people that saturate, saturate their approach into the presence of God himself. And so as he gets ready to launch the Christmas story in Luke chapter 1 and 2, he launches it. With the, with the indelible picture of prayer, of God's people crying out for help, of God's people expressing, we need you to fulfill Malachi 3 and 4. We need you to act upon what you've promised. 
We need your help in our days of political darkness. We need your help in our days of spiritual darkness. God, we need you. And the story of Christmas is launched with a picture of God's people desperate for God. I don't know if you noticed, but, but this prayer of God's people pictured by the aroma of incense lifting off the altar of incense incorporates both private prayer and corporate prayer. You, you notice that the angel said to Zechariah, God has heard thy prayer. What did Zechariah pray for year after year after year? He prayed, God, have pity on my wife. God, she is broken. God, she's hurting. God, she's longing for a baby. God, she's barren. God, would you please bless my wife? God, would you please come into our family and bless the needs of our home? You see, incorporated into this picture, launching the story of hope that Christ brings is a reminder that the story of hope comes after the cry, help. And that cry, help, incorporates our private prayer lives where we pray about the things that are deepest in our hearts. As we pray for family members, for special needs, for things that have broken our hearts. And there needs to be from each of our hearts, passing across our lips, and ascending up as the aroma of incense up into the presence of God, there needs to be a daily, ongoing cry out to God for his involvement in our lives. But I don't know if you noticed it, but it wasn't only private prayer. Did you notice verse number 9? says that his lot was to burn incense. When he went into the temple of the Lord. But notice verse 10. And the whole multitude of the people were praying without at the time of incense. You see what was happening was a corporate prayer meeting at the house of prayer. Jesus called the place where his people assembled together to worship him. To sing to him. And to pray to him. Jesus called it a house of prayer. A house where the people of God assembled together. And the Bible says that while Zechariah was inside the temple burning the incense on the altar of incense, the people of God were assembled just outside the doors. They were having a corporate prayer meeting as a group of people. They were all lifting up their voices to God. The whole multitude of the people were praying. And they were lifting up their voices. They were talking to God. God, help us. We're in days of darkness. God, we need you in our country. We need you to send the messenger that will introduce the Messiah. God, we need you. And they were crying out to God because they knew they needed God in their country and in their lives. And they met together every day to corporately pray. You know, the altar of incense and the aroma that comes up to the nostrils of God as he breathes it in this morning when we started our service and we said this is a house of prayer. 
we're going to take just a moment for everyone to pray. Everyone, get in groups. Everyone, pray. Call out to God. Audibly pray. Call out to God. You know what God was doing? God was in heaven. And as our prayers, as a church body in a house of prayer, assembled together to worship God in prayer, as you vocalize your prayers, as you put words to your heart and said words to God, there came, we couldn't see it, we couldn't smell it with our nostrils, but there came up from this room the aroma of incense. And that aroma of incense ascended up to the presence of God and God inhaled the aroma of our prayers. And God said, oh, oh, the aroma of the heart prayers vocalized to me from Community Baptist today. Do you understand that the message of hope comes because there's a cry for help every day from God's people, sometimes privately in our homes, every week and sometimes multiple times a week, collectively in this house of prayer. When you get with another member of the church and you audibly talk to God from your hearts and join your hearts together as members of Community Baptist and you pray and God enjoys the aroma of your prayers. How will the master storyteller launch the story of Christmas? He launches the story of Christmas by reminding us that we live in dark days. There's a lot to complain about. Politically and spiritually. He launches the story of Christmas. As a story of hope. Of God coming into humanity. And bringing peace and joy and love and hope. To a people who are hurting. He launches the story of Christmas. By reminding us that that story of hope comes because they're real people with broken hearts that cry out to God personally and privately in their homes and cry out to God corporately together as a church family and cry out to God, God, will you help us? We need you right now in our families, in our country, in our church. God. Would you help us? And as the aroma of those prayers ascend to the nostrils of God, God launches the story of Christmas.